Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Good morning? You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away! Let me speak for the love of God! Yes, good morning and hello to you wherever you are in the world or whatever time it is right now. Welcome to Good Movie Monday, that time of the week where we discuss things that are happening in the world of cinema. Glenn Cochran here and Keith Schultz over there. Hey Howdy. Keith, how are you? Very well, mate. How are you? Good. Pumped for another week. Absolutely raring to go. <laughs> if you're new to the show, uh, welcome to you. And if you're a return visitor, then thanks for sticking with us. We are presented by FakeShamp.net, which is a website run by nitwits uh, we, <laughs> who Indeed. dabble in all kinds of nerdy cinematic ramblings. So head over there and see videos, reviews, interviews, and a whole lot more. And it's great to be back with you for another week. So let's get started. Yeah. Coming up, we have got the conclusion to my interview with... Uh, Richard Stanley, the director of The Colour Out of Space. That was a great interview last week. Fascinating. That one did uh, good things for our little, it e- did. little show. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> and Jarrett returns with a dairy-free sexual abstinence edition of the PE class. <laughs> Poor Jarrett. <laughs> I think he may have learned his lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and Guillermo gives us an update on what's been happening over at Screen Realm. And AFCA chairman Adam Ross reviews the new Hugh Jackman film, Bad Education. And of course, the two of us are going to spit lyrical about a bunch of other stuff too. Indeed, the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching this week, Wayne? Do you know what? I have watched, I've watched a couple of films this week. So I watched uh, Ford vs. Ferrari. How good is that? Great film. Really enjoyed it. I'd say in the pantheon of... Uh, of racing movies, it would be high on the list. I should have said, did you enjoy it before I said, how good is that? Like just in, yeah. implying that it's great <laughs> yeah, it's and just... that you thought the same. No, I really enjoyed it. I had, had seen it before, but I actually enjoyed it more on the second watch. It was better than I thought, actually. Yeah. Great performances, shot impeccably. Tracy Letts. Yes. I believe steals the show for me. Man. Yeah, that scene where he just breaks down is just brilliant. He's great. He's a great I actor. I sat next to him at the Melbourne International Film Festival wow. when we watched the movie Christine. Oh, well. Not the John Carpenter film, but the one about the newsreader, Christine Chubbinuck. Ah, oh, yes, who, who went. committed suicide he, on yeah, live on air. Yeah, Christine. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, he was in that and just sitting next to him, I just felt like I was in the presence of, a, of royalty. A fantastic actor. Yeah. Shall we move on to a little bit of news before we push forward? Yes. So over the past few weeks, we've been discussing the precarious state of cinema and what the cinematic landscape might look like on the other side of this coronavirus crisis. Mm. Well, this week, some news landed on my desk that addresses local distribution that I found really interesting. Uh, there's a new company called The Reset Collective, which has been formed by a few key industry players. But rather than fumble my way through their mission statement, I'm going to quote directly from their press release. Uh, so bear with me. It's a little bit of a mouthful. They're an integrated Australian content company encompassing a new model distribution arm together with a production division for both TV and film. Acquisitions and distributions will be the immediate focus for the new company with plans for the development and production arm to unfold later in the year. So the Reset Collective will be based out of Sydney with a strong global presence through its UK and LA-based principles and is fully financed by London-based TV and film production company Genesis Pictures. So the distribution arm will be driven by digital and theatrical releases and will build innovative release strategies with its theatrical subscription video on demand partners while adapting to the changing entertainment landscape. Under the production arm, the company will prioritise partnerships with emerging Australian filmmakers and digital platforms looking to develop internationally focused content. Wow. Wow, that's a mouthful. It is. It's it's a new age we're going to, Glenn. It is. So for the full rundown on what the Reset Collective does, just Google their name and there's a whole bunch of media coverage. I find this fascinating. I think yeah. um, watch this space. We'll have more to say about it over the coming weeks. But I want to sort of focus on the point they mentioned theatrical in there. They did, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And how that's going to look moving forward. Yeah, I mean, like in other, other post-pandemic news, which ties in with this, Glenn, is that I believe the cinemas in Australia are planning to open in July, and obviously the big marquee films of that month is Big Chris Nolan's film Tenet, 
and the Disney flick Mulan, which have been well, uh, no, sorry, Tenet hasn't been moved at all. It's just had its initial it's original date, and Big Christopher, I believe, has been pushing that. He's just saying, no, we're going to open in July, regardless of whether or not there's going to be a limited amount of people who can attend. You know, restrictions, etc. Uh, which I find, I kind of, I kind of admire the great this man for. This is good. I mean, if you if you're going to pin all of your hopes on one person to help revigorate the theatrical landscape, it's Christopher Nolan. Who Absolutely, is, he's the champion of theatrical. He is. He's probably he's probably got the most power of an individual director currently working. Obviously, critically acclaimed, but people go and see his films in large numbers, don't they? Yeah. So, and, and I admire the fact that he's kind of like sticking to his guns. I believe he's been pushing Warner Brothers on this, who I think they wanted to move the date later. Yeah. And he's like pushing back. Now we're going to stick to this date because I think part, maybe it's a means to an end. And also the, the model doesn't, you know, like the opening weekend doesn't have to be this huge box office number. It's maybe playing the long game yep. where a film can stick around longer and chip away at, at, at the overall gross which is, you know, a different, I suppose, different mindset. That's a good point. And in yeah. the States, they don't have to contend with Universal. <laughs> Indeed, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I read this too. And so the estimated date is around July 16th. Yes. Um, depending on whether the government sort of give their go-ahead and all yeah. that kind of stuff and it's safe to do so. But yeah. that's interesting and that's fascinating and that's exciting. It's amazingly exciting. Imagine having a Christopher Nolan film to go see in July given one that looks as good as this one does. I know it's going to be a, yeah it's going to be a big hit so also we had the Melbourne International Film Festival announce a new online program called MIF 68 and a half wow which is to be like a reimagined celebration of cinema online featuring a schedule of films and events uh, all streamable across the original um, 2020 festival dates. Wow. So essentially they've moved their festival online. Wow. Yeah. So from August 6th through the 23rd, MIF will be forging ahead virtually and um, continuing to showcase films from around the world and locally. Wow. So tickets, um, I believe, go on sale around July 14th or something, but that's good too. But I, this leads mm. me into a discussion I want to have with you real quick. So with all of these you know, subscription-based video-on-demand platforms that are starting to pop up with mm. festivals and various events, on top of regular streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus and, and all the others, are you likely to pay for these sort of things? Probably, yes. It, I mean, I, I'm going to say yes, but it does depend on what films are going to be put on there See, this as is well. where, like, I'm just curious to find out what people are going to do because, for me, paying money for these sort of streaming services... I guess the feeling of bang for buck for me comes with going out yeah. and experiencing theatrical. Okay. Yeah. Do I feel there's bang for buck if I'm still at home? I've got all these other streaming services. Mm. You know, I've got to really, really want to see a film to pay more for it. I, I agree. Like, so, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with you. It would depend on, I wouldn't just pay for it just because there's a whole bunch of films being released. I'd have, there'd have to be a few in there that I'm like, I'm really yep. eager to see this and I don't want to wait and I'm happy to watch it at home. Uh, so it would, would depend on the titles, yeah. but if there was a couple of films that I was incredibly excited for, have anticipated followed production, I would probably pay the you know, whatever it is the twenty bucks to see it. because I, I believe in in um you know obviously being of the home entertainment generation, probably a lot of the um my favorite film experiences have happened on the couch at home. Yeah. So I, as much as I love going to the cinema, and I hope that continues, and will advocate that I, I've had. Probably as many satisfying experiences seeing movies at home. Yeah. So I'm kind of okay with it, you know? Sure. But I mean, and if I really enjoy a film and it gets released on a cinema screen as well as home, I'll probably do both. You know, it's, yeah, it's so strange because, you know, for me, the, the media environment that I work within, mm. most of the films I see are theatrical. Absolutely, yeah. And seeing films for the first time with an audience is completely different from watching a film for the first time at home, which yeah. I also watch, you know, through media screenings and screeners and things like that. And so, you know, I can separate the two and I know which one I'd prefer. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if the average Joe would be willing to fork out money. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. I think it would have to be... I think they, yeah, if it was a film that they were highly anticipating, and I don't know how... how for the average Joe, I don't know how many films they highly anticipate. Yeah, and there might be four or five for the year that they're really keen on seeing. And I guess when you have got something like MIF, they do have their audience. They do. Their yeah. MIF goers, their members, and yeah, you know, for lack of a better word, the average Joe <laughs> doesn't follow what they do anyway. I agree. So I, I think, I mean, I think for a film festival like that, I, I think part of it is the fact that you are going to a cinema mm. and communing with people. So they would lose a bit. I'd be interested to see how much. 
business they pick up online with this format. Well, simultaneously. We shall see. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's throw to Jarrett and let's cross our fingers that he behaves himself this week. Yeah, Jarrett. We're listening, son. Hey, this is Jarrett and welcome to PE Class. Now, this week, this segment is going to be free of sexual references and also dairy-free. In fact, I'm going to keep it clean. Clean like my friend Teddy the Mule. Teddy the Mule is uh, clean and sober these days, but uh, how he got his name the Mule, it's because, uh, well, he had a lot of drugs up his rectum and he was uh, travelling all around the world to deliver said uh, product to people and he had a kind of walk to him like a cowboy. Maybe, in fact, like he'd been riding a mule. And another thing about Teddy is he's actually a bit of a showman. And this is one of his songs. Smoking ice In me peace pipe Smoking meth In me deathbed I just want to get high. But anyway, moving on to this week's home entertainment releases. First up, we've got Defiant Screen Entertainment, who are releasing A Good Woman Is Hard To Find, which is an amazing film. We played it at all the Fangoria Times Monster Fest festivals last year across Australia, and I couldn't recommend seeing it. Enough, it's being released to DVD via Defiant Screen Entertainment. Then next up from Disney Fox, we've got Underwater, which I've talked about before because this is, again, a pretty underrated and very cool film. A film that was shelved for a period of time by 20th Century Fox and then released by Fox Disney in January of this year theatrically. And unfortunately, it's only coming out on DVD. There is no Blu-ray or 4K happening locally. In fact, there's no 4K happening anywhere in the world anymore but it has been released on blu-ray in the u.s so underwater definitely a contender for the best underwater creature feature uh horror film since oh god i can't even recall probably since leviathan in the late 80s then next up from rialto we've got the peanut butter falcon which is kind of film that came out and went under the radar locally as well but somehow and for some reason rialto held on to it for way too long and released it theatrically in australia about five months after the US, so subsequently it was already on home end over there, and unfortunately it's only getting a DVD release locally, but it's definitely worth checking out, even if you hate Shayla LaBeouf like myself, it is a very, very cool film. Then moving on to Roadshow, they've got the big releases this week, and they're headlined by Birds of Prey, aka that extremely long title that no one can remember. That's coming out in 4K, Ultra HD, Blu-ray, and DVD. Now it's not that you know, content heavy with the special features. It's a little disappointing, to be honest. There's really about six featurettes on there, a gag reel, and then something called Bird's Eye View that I don't know because I haven't seen a preview of the disc yet. No commentary, no deleted scenes. So it's a little bit of a missed opportunity, a bit of a shame there. However, the Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD both have Dolby Atmos tracks, which is terrific, and the 4K Ultra HD also has Dolby Vision. Very cool indeed. Then next up from Roadshow, we've got The Way Back, the Ben Affleck starring film that unfortunately came out locally pretty much on the cusp of the COVID-19 outbreak and it just um, it just disappeared and then was released early to digital. Well, now it's hitting home entertainment and with little fanfare as well because it's coming to Blu-ray with two featurettes of special features. Somewhat um, sad, you know, for, for, in my opinion, probably Ben Affleck's best film in a number of years. The DVD has one of the two featurettes. They couldn't even put the second feature in on there. Crazy. So that's me for this week, and I'll be actually off for the next two weeks, so there might be someone jumping in my chair and uh, getting physical with you. So just remember, uh, pretend it's me. Just close your eyes and pretend it's me. On this week's Scarefest Television, we welcome back hometown celebrity, Jim Beckel. You may not know that name yet, but his recent role in Candy Corn, opposite Tony Todd, has put him on the horror stardom map. Join us this week on Friday at 9pm Eastern Time Zone at ScarefestRadio.com or follow The Scarefest on Facebook and Twitter. Hey Keith. Here's something for shits and giggles. Yep. So last week on our bonus content video. So if you don't know, if you're listening to this, we do put up bonus videos on YouTube and on Facebook. Tasty treats. Stuff that we don't include in the show. Um, anyway, we put up a bonus video and I talked about Randy Quaid. 
<laughs> right. So despite his apparent like detachment from reality, I don't hide the fact that I adore this man. Mm. I think I've even mentioned it on other episodes. You probably have, yeah. And I probably will continue to talk about him. But I mentioned that he has a batshit crazy presence on Instagram. Mm. And well, I want to share a bit of that with you. <laughs> so here's a short snippet from one of his infamous monologues, Morphing Cinema with Politics... And this is one of a series of dramatic readings of Trump tweets. Okay, wow. Tell the Democrat governors that Mutiny on the Bounty was one of my all-time favorite movies. A good old-fashioned mutiny every now and then is an exciting and invigorating thing to watch. (laughs) Especially when the mutineers need so much from the captain. (laughs) Too easy. (laughs) You know, I really want to believe this is all an act. (laughs) Yeah. I want to to believe he's playing a character. Before he's doing a Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to determine where, one, where he stands politically, Mm. but where that... There's a, where that line is between sarcasm, parody, and dementia. That's right. I just don't know because for a long time I thought, man, he's lost the plot. Mm. But then when you when you separate those particular videos with some other ones he does, yeah, I he's, just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's capable of being lucid. Yeah, I, I don't know. It might be it might be an elaborate piece of performance art by the great man. He may have had you know <laughs> one too many. You know. Well, Randy, good health to you, sir. Yeah, and we right. would love to have you on this show. Right. He's got a sensational I've beard. reached out to him. Oh, have you? Yes, I have. Get him on the show. I want to. So let's hope. Randy. Fingers crossed. We're probably the only place in the world that would have him. Yeah. Anyway, let's, this is the man. Let's not forget, he made the Missouri Breaks, um, Midnight Express. The last detail. Of course. Uh, what about Independence Day? Yes. Oh, he's sensational. Texasville, Ma- yep. Maybe his character from Independence Day is, is manifested, you know? <laughs> oh, he did a great film in the 80s called Parents, which is like a comedy that. horror. I haven't seen that Brokeback one. Mountain. He's sensational in Brokeback Mountain. He's, He's Quick great. change with Bill Murray. Yeah, okay, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And of course, Kingpin. He, oh, yeah, of course. Kingpin. <laughs> Randy Quaid, we salute you, we sir. We sir. The American male human is retarded. Our objective is to keep him that way. So, Roger Deakins, Glenn, I know you're familiar with the great man, the the genius of cinematography. Two-time Oscar winner. Indeed, like 20-time nomination or whatever, <laughs> uh, has just launched his new podcast he on has. the art of cinema. He started it with his wife. Love it. His wife's name is James. <laughs> really? How weird is that? That's... But I think her name is like Isabella James or something, but professionally she goes by James Deakins. It's truly bizarre. So anyway, it's I think the, the podcast is called Team Deakins. Wow. Okay. And it discusses cinematography of yes, all things. Yes, of course. <laughs> so I think they've launched six episodes, which are now available to listen to. I haven't heard any of them. No. But why don't we take this opportunity maybe to talk about cinematography, what some of our favourite cinematographers are? I would absolutely love to. Well, let's start. I mean, let's start with the great man, Roger. I mean, what a what a storied career that man has had. Do you mm. have a personal favourite film of his that he's shot? Well, I mean, Blade Runner is gorgeous. Spectacularly shot. Incredible. Didn't lo- like it, don't love it, yeah. the film, but yeah. it looks amazing. I'll, I mean, you know, I'm probably going to go Skyfall here, let's be honest. Of course. That film looks impeccable. Yep. Amazing work, Roger. Do you draw the distinction between um, cinematographer and director of photography? I know that's a, a, that's a point question. of contention with a lot. I think it's more or less the same, depending on I, where you are. I feel like it's the same. Do you know, in my, back in the my video, I didn't realise how important the cinematography is to a film. It's... It's incredibly integral. In fact, I know Orson Welles was Citizen Kane. If you look at the credits of Citizen Kane, it says um, director Citizen oh, Orson Welles, yeah. photographer Greg Tolan, the cinematographer. He put him on the same level because yeah. that's how vital a well, cinematographer is. That's right. Yeah. Like a lot of people that don't know how films are made don't know that the director doesn't hold the camera. No. The director's not pulling those shots. That's right. Yeah. In fact, the cinematographer's not pulling the shots. The camera puller's pulling the yeah, shots. That's right. <laughs> pulling focus. Yeah. Um, who are some of your favorites? I would say, well, I mean, look, I admire the work of Greg Toland, obviously shot Susan Kane. Incredible work. Incredibly yeah. groundbreaking. I, I love, I mean, I, th- I think, um, Freddie Young, who shot uh, Lawrence of Arabia, mm. which has got to be, if you're going to do like top two or three greatest examples of cinematography, I'd probably put 
Lawrence of Arabi right up there. That is a phenomenal piece of work. You, you do kind of automatically want to go to the classics. That's right. Because they feel more cinematic. They might not be as technically as, you know, no. what astute as they are now. Yeah. But Incredible in your work. mind, like that is oh, yeah. where it's at. Um, I would say Jeffrey Unsworth, who shot 2001 A Space Odyssey, which still is staggering. What, what you, are, you were playing the character. Right <laughs> yeah, <now>. yeah. <laughs> he also shot Superman, the movie, yeah. which was his last one. I think he died before it came out. But, um, I mean, 2001, what a staggering piece of work. And, of course, I've got to go with my boy Francis Ford Coppola, obviously the director, but the film Apocalypse Now, yeah. which if I had to pick one film as an example of incredible cinematography, it would be that, which I believe is Vittoria Sotaro. That sounds about right, yeah. yeah. There's the Italians. I mean, Tonino Deli Colli, who shot Once Upon a Time in the West. You know, there are so many cinematographers that I have no idea how to pronounce their name. No. Even some of the ones I love. Yeah. Um, so, like, for me to play to my character, I'd have to say Yunus um, Kaminsky, who pretty much shot every single Spielberg film yeah. from Schindler's List on. Schindler's List, staggering yeah. piece of work. Yeah, amazing. Amazingly well shot. I think of all the films he's done since then, right, mm. this, is, this is the guy that's done them. Like, so, we're talking everything from like, War Horse, quite remarkable. Yeah. Uh, the Post, simple. Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Staggering. Uh, you know... So many films in yeah. there, and but the the style and the juxtaposition between them, like you go from War of the Worlds to Armistad to you're yeah, like, this guy did it. Yeah. So uh, another one that came to my mind, I didn't know his name. I had to look him. Like I know the films he does, but I didn't know how to pronounce his name. Emmanuel Lebesgue. Yeah, I was actually going to mention this guy. This yeah. guy's a weapon. Yes. Yeah, so he's done like Gravity, Revenant, Children of Men. Yeah. Children of Men. What a film. Yeah. I Man. mean he. He employs realism, mm. you know, like there's much more to it just being like beautifully shot. It's just, it's gritty and it's raw yeah. and it feels like you're looking at a slice of life. Oh, The Revenant. Yeah. Is, the Revenant's got amazing cinematography. Yeah. Mind you, brutal. this guy did do Tree of Life and we'll forgive him for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Roger Ebert, one of the top 10 greatest films of all time, according to Roger. Wow. Not according to you. He was sick at the time. Yeah, he was. One I want to mention um, for a number of reasons. Uh, Takeo Sato. Now, this is a yeah. guy that shot quite a few Kurosawa films. Yes. Um, so, firstly, I like what he does. So, mm. I've, I've thought films like Dreams, which is my favorite Kurosawa yeah, you film. Love that, don't you? Beautiful. He did uh, Cage Musha and Red Beard. Did he do Ran? He may have. Because that is impeccably yeah, I, shot. I, I actually, I don't think he did. Okay. But we can be fact checked on that. Yeah. Uh, but the reason I bring him up is because my old mate and B movie hero, Albert Pune, Interned under this guy. Wow. So before he made Sword and the Sorcerer, he was on the set of Kurosawa. You know, things That's amazing. Working with uh, Takeo Sato. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And if you look at the first uh, 15 maybe films of, of Albert Pune, mm. they are shot impeccably. Wow. Yeah. They are beautiful films. Yeah. And Sword and the Sorcerer is the you know, highest grossing independent film of all time and just yeah. looks the bit. You looks, know? looks the business. Uh, and the only other one I had that came to mind, I mean, lots came to mind, but I wanted to talk about David Egby because this yep. guy did the original Mad Max. Mm. Went on to things like uh, Ironclad, Quigley Down Under, <laughs> Predator. I think he did uh, second DP on that one. Wow. Uh, Pitch Black. Like, he's just one of these guys. I like to know Aussie guys that have gone and done well. Yeah. You know? And For Mad sure. Max. Cinematography of Mad Max is quite revolutionary. Yeah, it is. Let's just talk on the first one. Yeah. Hey everyone, it is Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with a review of Bad Education. Now that might seem a little bit confusing because you're like, which Bad Education? Because there's about four or five properties with that title. No, not the new Netflix series, but instead this uh, small, powerful, independent film premiering on HBO and Foxtel here in Australia by emerging director Corey Finley. Um, what is special about this movie? Well, there's a couple of things that are special, but mainly it's written by Mike Mikowski. And Mike Mikowski was actually a student at the school where this film is set. This film chronicles the biggest scandal, basically, in American schooling history. And front and centre is Hugh Jackman delivering, I believe, his best performance as Frank Tassone. Uh, Jackman is playing here into his own persona by a man that is so perfect on the surface but has this secretive life. Um, and I think there's something a little bit meta here in the performance because Jackman is so impeccable in so many ways that people always want to try and find a chink in his armour. They're like, can he be that nice? Is he straight? You know, how does his marriage work? There's all this kind of talk about him sometimes because he's this, you know, triple A above the marquee movie star who has just can't do anything wrong. Um, personally, I went and saw Jackman do his live performance recently 
and the guy is a human meteor. So to see him play this nuanced, really calculated performance shows his his range. And something that's quite special about this movie is that because this is happening in quarantine, and even though this was a HBO movie, it may be eligible for the Oscars. And I think that if it is, then Jackman will definitely be scoring a nomination because I believe that him leaning into this secret life and it's flickering just behind the eyes, behind this perfect persona of Frank Tassone is just incredible acting. Um, he's offered amazing support here by Alison Janey, and the two of them play off each other in such a great way. What is also interesting about this movie is that often when movies are about frauds or scams, they like to lean into the opulence. They like to show you what these guys are spending stuff on. And this movie is much more smaller and calculated, and it's got these character moments. So it really is kind of like a walk and talk drama, and it is a lot of it is set just in uh, classrooms and you know, and boardrooms and things like that. But there is this kind of like tit for tat and slow exposure of information between the characters that makes it really, really engrossing. So it's darkly humorous, this movie, and it definitely is very subtle and complex. Um, but yeah, well worth your time. And I would give this a rock solid four stars. And I think that just to show how you know actually good of a performer Jackman is, that he doesn't have to just rely, you know, like on his muscles or his megawatt charisma uh, and there's this dangerous inversion of those elements here in this movie that is just yeah, you can't take your eyes off it so bad education on foxtel at the moment amazing performances and yeah and just a really really interesting story four stars from me
<laughs> that was Ooh La La by Red Eye. That's from the soundtrack to the Farrelly Brothers Kingpin. Yeah, what a- <laughs> part of my ongoing tribute to the legendary Randy, Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid, three votes. <laughs> I've committed a sin. I've desecrated my body. Can't go home now. No, can't go home. But anyway, rain it in, Glenn. This is not all, <laughs> this is not all about Randy Quaid. No. Last week, our interview with Richard Stanley gained quite a bit of traction, ended up being shared all over the place, even by the great man himself. Yes. Mate, I was stoked. Fantastic endorsement. So Colour Out of Space is now available on Blu-ray and DVD, and it is a must-see film without question. But let's hear the conclusion of my conversation with Richard, uh, because this is a good one. He talks a little bit more about what's coming up after the fact. Mm. So obviously in Colour Out of Space, uh, Nicolas Cage gives a tour de force performance. Um, but I think the other standout performance was, as far as I'm concerned, young Julian Hillard, who plays his son. Was there a challenge with directing kids that you hadn't expected? Well, they do say don't work with children and animals. Um, obviously, we, um, we had Julian, who's um, seven years old in the movie, uh, as well as a herd of alpacas and um, two dogs and a horse. He's a future horror star. Um, he's actually got two new horror projects lined up already, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this kid's journey is uh, going to look like. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. I do feel that if he's manages to survive um, childhood and being a creepy kid, he's got some kind of um, career ahead of him in the industry. So in the last few months, the film has blown up all around the world. Social media is going nuts for it. Did you honestly think that it would um, have such a huge response? Um, well, in, in, in its optimum circumstances, I was rather hoping that um, Colour might um, reach a wider audience than most of my work, simply because of the harnessing together of um, Nick Cage and H.P. Lovecraft, um, who have... Um, pretty wide demographics in their own right that don't normally overlap. Um, H.P. Lovecraft in particular is a bizarre figure because um, his work has essentially permeated every aspect of um, contemporary culture without um, anyone deliberately promoting it. Like um, kids in Africa in Russia or um, Japan or the, the French Pyrenees where I'm living can all readily identify Cthulhu. Not uh, even know that the little green guy with the tentacles is Cthulhu, but they know his name. Um, even if they don't know who H.P. Lovecraft is. Um, just the same way that the Necronomicon is um, kind of a known quantity all over the world. So, um, to some extent, Lovecraft's been spreading through um, pop culture like some kind of um, psychoactive virus. And, um, it's touched the lives of yet more people than, than any of us know. I think they want to but they do seem to be literally um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of um, Lovecraft fans out there who have been um, waiting for a movie like this. Absolutely. And do you think that your own personal journey and the lore that surrounded you, as documented in Lost Souls, has played any part in bolstering this film? Well, I think it helped as I was parked on top of the mountain for 20 years. Yeah, but, uh, 
I still like my physical makeup effects, my gore effects, and my, um, my black humor, and as well, along with my um, bright primary colors as much as I liked them in the early 90s. That is music to my ears. <laughs> so, what's next for you? Well, given the, um, the um, runaway success of color, um, that was now that we're going to be doing two more um, Upcraft movies. So I'm ready developing the um, official follow-up to Color Out of Space, which is a, a new adaptation of um, the Dunwich Horror, another one of um, Upcraft's most famous stories, which um, will give us an opportunity to yeah, expand on the themes of color, um, to, um, also to um, take the saga back on campus to go back to Piscatonic University for the first time since Reanimator, and um, get to grips with the Necronomicon, the, um, the black book that's at the, um, the core of the stories. So I think that's something that's going to be um, happening um, very swiftly, and I'm hoping that will be um, literally um, in production by the end of this year. That is very exciting. Well, I appreciate your time, mate. And to finish up, I just want to ask you a question that I end many interviews with. What are some of your favourite Australian films? Um, a great many that I absolutely love and adore. I mean, I think I was absolutely traumatised as a child by um, the by um, the Hanging Rock and the Last Wave by Peter Weir, which I remember scaring the living crap out of me when I was about nine. Um, yeah, I was also a big fan of the original um, Long Weekend from back in the day. Uh, I guess... Um, Australian filmmakers have always had a uncanny ability to um, to, to imbue the landscape and the, uh, the environment with a, a subtly menacing and um, kind of malevolent character of its own, which um, is something I've always appreciated. And a little bit of that leads into the way that the, um, the, the forests and the locations and colour retreated. Quite right. And being cut off from the rest of the world helps too. Yeah, I think uh, being a South African I've probably got some of that creative DNA as well. Yes, no doubt. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me, Richard. I love your work and I've loved it since hardware got released, so this is definitely a geek out moment for me. Congratulations on the film. It's outstanding. Uh, thank you so much for presenting. Take care, mate. Have a great evening. Uh, you too, mate. Take care, out there. You know what was really frustrating about that interview in retrospect? Mm. It was recorded late last year, right? to promote the screening at Monster Fest. It was the premiere of the film. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of the fact that some of the stuff he was giving me in that interview was absolutely exclusive. Yeah. So he talks about the films he's doing, the new um, Lovecraft, you know, Dunwich Horror and all that. I was probably one of the first people in yeah. the world he's told, and I didn't know it, so we couldn't lead with that as breaking news or anything like that. Yeah. Because only now a news outlet starting to report this is like, oh my God, look what he's doing now. And I'm yeah. Like, you Mon- had it months ago. I yeah, had that. that's right. You had the scoop. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Color Out of Space is now available on Blu-ray and DVD through Umbrella. As I said, it's a fantastic release. And the documentary we discussed last week, Lost Soul: The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau, is included as a special feature. Awesome. So that is worth it for the price alone. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. So thanks again to Stack Magazine for allowing me to play the full uncut interview. As I always say, it includes the stuff that didn't make it to print. Hi, I'm Andrew Mike Doyle, serial toilet paper hoarder and host of Remotely Funny, the quarantined comedy show. Each week during isolation, we're bringing you the best of Australian comedy direct from their homes straight to yours. Submissions are open for comedy acts to appear on the show and we'll be airing episodes each week on our dedicated YouTube channel. They'll be available to watch online after all our live screenings. See facebook.com forward slash remotely funny for all the details. What's going on everybody? Happy to be back on Good Movie Monday. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Let's start covering some of the news that we've covered on ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favourite entertainment website. Not content with risking his life on Earth, Tom Cruise has decided to risk it in space. The Mission Impossible star plans on making an action-adventure film completely shot in space and he'll be working with Elon Musk's SpaceX company and NASA in order to pull it off. It's still early on in this project and no studio or filmmaker has been named as yet and this is true, NASA has confirmed it. 
Oscar winner Taika Waititi is set to tackle a much bigger chapter in that galaxy far far away. After directing an episode of The Mandalorian, Waititi will now be directing and co-writing a Star Wars feature film. Joining him on the screenplay is Christy Wilson Cairns, who earned an original screenplay Oscar nomination for co-writing the masterful war drama 1917. No further details have been announced regarding Waititi's Star Wars movie, although it's at least known that the film is planned for a theatrical release and not Disney+. Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt are set to reunite in a potentially big project that's starting to take shape. The stars of Disney's upcoming Jungle Cruise film are attached to star in Ball and Chain, an adaptation of a 1999 comic by Scott Lobdell. The project comes with a script by Emily V. Gordon, who co-wrote 2017 feel-good comedy The Big Sick with her husband and star Kumail Ninjani. The Ball and Chain comics tell of Edgar and Mallory Bolson, a bickering couple who have basically decided to throw in the towel with their descending relationship. Everything changes when a mysterious meteor immerses the couple in extraterrestrial energies that bestow them with superpowers. The powers, however, only work if they are working together. There's no studio on board as yet, but it looks like Netflix is on the way to winning the bidding war. More Netflix news, the streaming giant is on the way to making Bright 2. That's right, a sequel to the 2017 action fantasy starring Will Smith and Joel Edgerton is now in the works, with director Louise Leterrier in talks to take the helm. Leterrier's credits include The Transporter, Unleashed, The Incredible Hulk, and Now You See Me, as well as all 10 episodes of Netflix series The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. No plot details for the sequel are known at this time, although the follow-up will reportedly be expanding the story from the streets of LA to an international stage. And it appears that Chris Hemsworth's Netflix action movie Extraction will indeed be getting a sequel. Extraction screenwriter Joe Russo has officially signed a deal with the streaming giant to write a script for a second film. No surprise really since Extraction is set to become Netflix's most watched film ever. Nicolas Cage will be playing Joe Exotic. That's right, the Oscar winner is set to play the subject of Netflix's hit docuseries Tiger King in a scripted eight episode show based on the 2019 Texas Monthly article titled Joe Exotic, A Dark Journey into the World of a Man Gone Wild. Dan Lagana, who served as a showrunner on Netflix mockumentary American Vandal, will be on board as writer, showrunner, and executive producer. Cage is also among the executive producing team. A couple of reviews up this week, the first from John Noonan for Hearts and Bones, an Australian film starring Hugo Weaving. The film has Weaving playing a war photographer who is preparing an exhibition of his work from the world's war zones. He soon meets a man whose village was massacred and who appeals to him to not have those photographs in his exhibition. John Noonan absolutely loved this film, giving it a rare five stars. In his review, he commended the performances and called the film absolutely powerful. I quote, Hearts and Bones tries to cover a multitude of issues from immigration to masculinity, and the fact that it manages to do so, giving equal weighting to each one it tackles, solidifies the notion that it is indeed a classic piece of cinema. Mad Men Films has already released the film digitally and it will be on DVD on June 3rd. The second review we had go up was from Adam Fleet for a movie called Blood Quantum. Zombies are coming back to life and infecting everyone except there's a group of indigenous inhabitants who are strangely immune to this zombie plague. Adam mostly enjoyed the film, giving it 3 out of 5 stars. In his review he wrote, It's refreshing to hear an indigenous voice in horror, and it's quite a feat to bring any new idea to the zombie genre. Those less jaded with the zombie movie Deluge of the past decade will have a blast with Blood Quantum, as it is a well put together bloody horror movie that ticks all your undead boxes, 3 out of 5 stars. We also have a new giveaway up right now, this one thanks to Eagle Home Entertainment for the release of Bloodline, starring Sean William Scott. From the producers of Us and Get Out, Bloodline is an ultra-violent thriller in the vein of Dexter. Sean William Scott plays Evan, who values family above all else, and anyone who gets in between him, his wife, and his newborn son learns that the hard way. But when it comes to violent tendencies, it seems the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It comes out on DVD and digital May 20th. That's it for me guys, hope everyone's doing okay out there. Be sure to follow Screen Realm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all that jazz. Thanks so much, I'm out. Robert De Niro, a very low IQ individual, has received too many shots to the head by real boxers in movies. I watched him last night, and I truly believe he may be punch-drunk. I guess he doesn't realize that the economy 
is the best it's ever been, with employment at an all-time high and many companies pouring back into our country. Wake up, Punchy! I think it's about time we recommend some more movies. I'm raring. I love this part of the show. Uh, Keith, what films do you recommend our listeners watch this week? And is it boring? It's not boring. <laughs> it's never boring with me, Glenn. Is it, is it typical of me a resounding yes? But it's probably by one of the two or three most famous directors of all time. It is a film by Stanley Kubrick. It is, though, not one of his more famous ones. It is Can the... I- Ooh. No, go on. There you go. The killing. Indeed, ah. nailed it. Ah. And I had. And he just nailed it. <laughs> yeah, he saw through me. Um, yeah, it is the killing, the 1956 film noir heist thriller, innovative, groundbreaking. You did lead him with the, so I thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, what a film! Non-linear has inspired a lot of films. I believe there's some Reservoir Dog. Um, vibes, or should I say there's some yeah. killing vibes in Reservoir Dogs? <laughs> yes. Sorry, Quentin. But uh, what a great film, starring Sterling Hayden. What an actor Sterling was. Uh, underrated, I feel, in some great films. Insane guy, apparently he was totally off the rails. Was offered the role of Quentin Jaws, but didn't take it, I believe, before well, that Robert was Shaw. Wasn't Indeed, it? because Robert smashed it out of the yeah. park. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> the Killing, it's a heist film. It's about the good old boys who want to rip off uh, the, the horse racing track. It's non-linear. It has a bit of a twist ending that still guts me. It's If I didn't know it was directed by Stanley Kubrick, uh, there are some cues, some visual cues, yep. but his style, he wasn't the great man, was he? It was only his third film. Yeah. He used to punch him out then. He made one in 53, 54, and this is 56, and he did another one in 57. Then he took 10 years between films once he became famous. But I'd recommend it. It's an easy watch. Yes. It's short and sharp. It's about 80 minutes. Pre-auteur. Indeed, yeah. It was before he was the great man. Yeah. I believe the next year he made Paths of Glory, and that was when he became... I have not seen The Killing since my film school days, yeah. which is over 20 years ago. That's right. I need I, to revisit. Absolutely. Actually, I, I saw it on, on a shelf the other day for sale, and I thought, you know, I've got to get that in my collection at some point. Yeah, I was going to say, the Blu-ray print is sensational. It looks great, crisp. Really brings out that well, cinematography. Well, then hopefully by the time we talk next week, I will have it in Indeed. my hands. And we can have a, some banter. Mm. Yeah. So but I've been watching a lot of Aussie films lately. I know. <laughs> it's all over my social media. Uh, this week I'm recommending a 1990 teen rom-com called The Big Steel. I reckon I've heard of this. This one is so good. It's directed by Nadia Tass. Now, this came right off the uh, success of Malcolm, I believe. Oh, Malcolm. What oh, a classic. What a classic, absolutely. Uh, but the film is a sweet story about a teenage guy, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who tries to impress a girl, Claudia Carvin, by buying a Jaguar car. But he's ripped off by a shady used car salesman, who's played by Steve Bisley. Wow. And then, so this kid hatches a scheme with his mates to get revenge on the, the car salesman. <laughs> it is a dynamite film. Easily one of the best Aussie comedies in general. Yeah. One of the best teen rom-coms in the world. Mm. Like, it's just that yeah. good. It's a brilliant slice of Australiana, particularly if you live in Melbourne. Yeah. There's a real Melbourne-centric thing going on oh, here. I love that. Yeah, so Mendelssohn is great. Uh, Claudia Carvin is great. Uh, Damon Harrington, you know, the guy that... I He's do. from um, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, played Charles yeah. Manson, He's in it. Mindhunter. Wow. Yeah, he's one of the lead sort of you know friends in it. He's hilarious. Wow. He was only about 16 at yeah, the time. Yeah, I was going to say he'd be a pup. The, some would say, legendary actor Marshall Napier is great, and Steve Bisley is absolutely hysterical. Mm. I think it's the best thing he's ever done. Wow. So it's on Amazon Prime. Just go watch it. It's I'll one have of, to go and check that one out. One of the best. I love it. I love a bit of Mendelssohn. Should we announce last week's winner? We should. All right. So uh, a lot of you were sharing and bantering and you know commenting with us on social media last week. And uh, one in particular caught my attention, David Spratt. David. So David, just for doing what you did, you've won some movies. They're mystery movies. You're not going to know what they are until they rock up at your doorstep. They're tasty mysteries. The post is quite heavily delayed at the moment. Indeed. We, um, we awarded Brody several, several <laughs> weeks ago and he only just received his prize. <laughs> I finally got I it. Know. So uh, I hope you've got a lot of patience there, David. The, your movies are on their way. So if you want to win a mystery movie prize pack next week, I've got a secret bunch to give away. So continue interacting with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. It's as simple as a share, a comment, or a like. Mm. And we're going to just pluck that winner at random on next week's episode. Now, most weeks before we run, I like to plug other shows and draw attention to things that they're doing just to support that 
community entertainment thing. Indeed. And so this week, I want to shout out to Bonehead Weekly. They're from the US, and they're a fantastic podcast. They're with me on uh, Scarefest TV every week. They've got their own segment. But I want to draw your attention to them because they recently interviewed director Patrick Lussier, uh, who is uh, the director of My Bloody Valentine and Drive Angry with Nicolas Cage. Wow. It's a fantastic uh, Zoom interview all on screen, so you can watch him interact with them. Uh, so jump onto the Bonehead Weekly bandwagon. It is well worth the time. And as for a local mob, let me uh, give a quick shout out to Screen Space. They're a comprehensive film news website committed to unique perspectives, fresh content, and user interaction. And they're headed by journalist, film critic, and festival director Simon Foster. Ah, Simon. Yes, so Screen Space support our work here at Good Movie Monday and at Fake Champ. So we support them in return. We do. Now, before we really sign off here, Keith, our good mate, Loyal listener, number one listener, Brody, wanted me to discuss the Delta Force franchise this week. <laughs> he saw that I was watching Operation Delta Force Part 5 last week, and he was keen for me to elaborate on the entire series. Now, mate, perhaps we could dedicate an entire show to that, but <laughs> maybe not. Well, I feel like Brody would listen, but... <laughs> not many others would, so maybe not. Um, but I will say this, that if they ever release a definitive Blu-ray box set with all eight movies, eight. then they can take my money yeah, right now. Yeah, absolutely. You and Brody's. All began with Chuck Norris, mate. Yeah, I know. And Lee Marvin. <laughs> Lee Marvin. What a legend of a screen. Yep. What a hard man. Ugh. Anyway, we are at the end of the show, so thanks for listening, everybody. It's been heaps of fun talking shit with you. Um, thanks to Guillermo. Thanks to Adam for their weekly updates. Big cheers to Jarrett for popping that Xanax and keeping it PG as best as he could, I guess. Thank you, Jarrett. <laughs> Keith, mate, I love doing this every week with you. Absolutely. It's been heaps of fun. Pleasure never a chore, Glenn. So we're going to go out with a song called I Saw the Light by Todd Rundgren. Another cracker from Kingpin. <laughs> Randy, my brother. Come back to us, mate. Coming on the show, son.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Randy Quaid and the Thundercar! Hey bro, I don't know, but there's a certain so-and-so sleeps in your bed most every night. She's not your average Joe. I've heard it said that love is blind and I don't want to seem unkind. To each his own is what I say, but have you lost your mind? Now you may think you're wise some kind of beauty queen but I don't think that she's the kind of queen you really mean so please don't think I'm rude if I have reason to conclude your lady fair is not four square she used to be a dude Thank you. 